Here's the disciples. They are having peril at sea. This is bad. If a fisherman, a seasoned veteran fisherman, is scared in this storm, it must be bad. Now, God put this in the Bible for a reason. I think for an analogy for us, for life, basically. You know, there are many events in life that start out placid, but they evolve into a storm. So what do we do? What do we do when we're in the midst of the Sea of Galilee? What do we do when we're an impossible situation that only the Master can help us through? What do we do? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the Gospel of Mark and the fourth chapter, if you would. Mark chapter 4. We've been in a series on lessons from the Lord and things that we can learn from questions He asked. When I went to college, straight out of high school, it was down at the North Dakota State School of Science. It was the State School of Science back in those days. And they had a slogan there at science, as we called it. They said, where, st- where students learn by doing. That's how they expressed it. Where students learn by doing. And the thought there was that, yeah, you've got that classroom time, but we're going to take what you learn and the theory you, you take in, and we're going to bring it into the laboratory and there have you make it practical and, and hands-on and kind of on-job training kind of a thing. And it was really beneficial. Well, Jesus Christ often did that with his disciples. They would go from the classroom to the laboratory. He would teach them some truth, and then he would take them out in the field, as you will, and, and, and try and get them to experience it firsthand. And when I read Mark 4, that's what I think of here. We begin in verse number 35, and you'll get the setting real quick. It says, In the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and saith unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We find Jesus Christ teaching some things to them earlier on in the day, in the classroom setting, if you will, but then taking them into the laboratory. And as we look at this lesson from the Lord, that's what we're going to call it, from the classroom to the laboratory. And we're going to see what we can learn from it. Let's pray before we begin. Now, Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless this time in your word, and I pray that you would help us to take it in as applied unto ourselves personally. And Lord, please show us some ways that we can learn and practice that which you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Now, we've looked at a lot of things in these lessons from the Lord, and we've been kind of bouncing around. And we saw recently where Christ showed up on the shore of Gadara, and it follows, actually, this story, just so you kind of know where it's placed in there. But you find the disciples more than once during the three-and-a-half ministry of Jesus Christ arguing about something. And what were they arguing about? Well, they were arguing about who would be the greatest. More than once, in fact, right up to the Last Supper, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. And Jesus caught them more than once, knew it was going on, even addressed it one time. And in Mark 9.34, it says, but they held their peace. (laughs) For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. They had this ego problem, this pride problem, always talking about who's going to be the greatest. Well, folks, let me just bring it up to the 21st century for us. We shouldn't worry about that. That's not what it's about in the Christian economy. We read in Romans 12:3, Paul says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We're not a big deal. Let's not think of ourselves any more highly than we ought to think. Golda Meir was the Israeli gold, uh, uh, prime minister, Golda Meir was, years ago, and, and she'd often say this to somebody, you don't have to be so humble, you're not that great. <laughs> and you know, it's, it should be a sign on all of our deaths. You don't have to be that humble, you're not that great. I'm not that great. We're not that big a deal. Now, Jesus was going to, I think, subtly teach these fellows that lesson with the storm at sea. You ever been at a, in, a, in a real bad storm? Now, we know what blizzards are all about here in the FM area and in the upper Midwest and in the plains and states like this. But how about being out on the water, open water, big water, and having, I mean, the rain and the gales and the gusts and the winds come down upon you like that? Every summer I take a fishing trip up north of Kenora, Ontario, and I mean it's by the White Dog Indian Indian Reservation. We we go with uh, some preachers and and their sons, and we have a good time. And I'm telling you, it's a place where if you don't like the weather, just stick around for about 15 minutes because it'll change on you. It's amazing how quickly it can change and how storms can blow up there. And I mean, there's been storms up there where the rain falls in buckets, it falls sideways where the tops of trees are breaking off, and I mean, water's getting in the boat. There's a fellow that was brought up there one time, and, and uh, he hasn't been back since, but, but uh, he was in his, his poor rain gear that particular trip, and I mean, it was coming down in sheets, and the water was in the bottom of the boat, and he'd quit fishing, it was ice cold, you couldn't even bait the, the lines there, and he's just sitting there, and, and I don't know if he was kidding or meant to, but he, he just suddenly cried out, I want my mommy, I want my mommy, and and, and, and strong men have been driven to cry out for their mommy up there in Canada. Have you ever been in that kind of weather? Well, we're going to see the disciples in that kind of weather. And they've been in the classroom all day learning, but now they're, they're in the laboratory. And let's see how they fare. And as the story opens, we see what I call, first of all, class dismissed. Class dismissed. Now, the setting of the story is kind of a hard one for us to relate to. Sitting on padded pews... In, in climate-controlled environment, in fact, we hear from you if it's a degree too cold or a, a degree too warm, it's kind of, ooh, I, just a tad hot today in here. And, and so it's hard for us to, to relate to what the setting was in this storm, all right? We're going to have to use our imagination. Now, secondly, we're going to have to use the content. 
and the context of it because th that is so very important. The previous verses, and we're coming to the end of the chapter here, but in the previous verses, they had been busy all day long. Christ had been teaching. Christ had been healing. Christ had been giving them parables. And Christ had been interpreting the parables for the disciples there. And, and so he's casting out devils. He's doing all this stuff. The disciples are taking it in. They're learning. They're growing. And we come to verse number 35. And uh, it says, And the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Now, that had to be a welcome relief. I mean, they've been working hard all day long. Have you ever had just a long day and a full day, and, and at the end of the day you're just dog-tired? I mean, we've had days around here in, in the 25 years, and, and there have been days where we, we'll pour concrete and shovel sand all day and, and work hard, and I'll, I won't even be ready for Sunday. It's a Saturday night or something, and I'll have to go home study for hours. And I mean, lots of times like that where you just, you just collapse in bed, and you groan, and you, you shut your eyes, and you're out. Well, they're that tired here. And, and Christ knows it, so he said, well, let's take a break. So they're going to they're gonna actually go from the west to the east. They're going to get in this boat, and they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee, and there they're going to go to the other side and try and get away and have a little bit of a hyenas or a, or a sabbatical. Now, in verse 36, it says, And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. You know, I never noticed it in verse 36 until this last week. It says they took him even as he was in the ship. The Bible puts little things like that. And this story is in three out of the four Gospels. And it's not in the other Gospels. But here it says he, they took him even as he was. And I thought, what's that mean? Well, he'd been teaching all day. He had been in a boat perhaps teaching all day. And, and now they're going to go across the other side, and so he probably just stays out in the boat. They take him as he was. There's no provisions. There's no time for that. He doesn't go back to the house of Peter there in Capernaum and grab some of his things. It's just going to be a quick trip across the lake or the sea there, and it's going to take just a, a few hours basically here, and uh, there's going to be other boats. Notice it mentions that in verse 36. There were also with him other little ships, so theirs must have been a little bit bigger than the rest. And those other little ships must have gone by the wayside as, as this storm arose there in the Sea of Galilee. But they take off and everything's cool. And, and it's dark out by this point. I mentioned recently that when he encountered the demoniac at Gadara, that was dark. And that's why. They had spent the whole day here. Now they're taking off. And, and it's going to be dark out. But these are seasoned fishermen. So they're not afraid. They know these waters like the back of their hand. They fish the Sea of Galilee. And I picture it as a very calm night, moonlit night in, in calm sea. And, and, and if you like me, you've seen, I mean, the ocean even or lakes when you could throw a pebble in it and it just send out ripples. No wind, everything is just so calm. And that's the kind of setting they take off in. But reality is going to set in. Reality is going to set in. A storm is coming. And folks, isn't that just like life? Often we have calm evenings, don't we? That turn into stormy nights. Oftentimes... College starts off very calm in the evening, if you will, and, and you have to go through some storms and you go through the black of night. Oftentimes, a marriage starts off very wonderful. It's very calm in the evening, but as you get into the night, it can get pretty stormy. Perhaps a job starts out, hey, this is great. What a great job. But then you get into the night and it gets stormy. Sometimes self-employment. You start it off and in the evening it's all calm and you go, man, this is really where it's at. 
But you find out real soon that self-employment is not about self. And you find yourself working around everybody else. Sometimes ministries start out calm in the evening. And then you get into the black of night. Sometimes child-rearing will start out calm in the evening. But then the black night comes along. So it's calm in the evening, but then it gets very stormy. And it's the same here. They take off on a calm evening, but soon they're under the gun. It started out so peaceful and so wonderful, and yet they had no idea a storm was coming. You know, I mentioned a moment ago going to a college down in Wapaton for a few years. I lived up by Crookston on a lake, Maple Lake, about 25 miles southeast of Crookston. It was about a 100-mile drive. Whenever I went from the house to the lake, which was about every month or two, I'd go home. Well, in the winter, uh, I remember especially one trip when I headed back. And, of course, we didn't have Doppler radar and all these computer gadgets in those days. And, and so I just kind of watched, and everything looks good. And I took off, and about halfway there, I found myself in, in one of the worst storms I've ever been in, with finger drifts across the road so bad that I was driving on the shoulder of the other side just to get around them hoping nobody was coming and trying to see where I was going. Have you ever started out and it, it was calm? But after you got into it, man, I, I mean, the gales and the winds and the gusts were blowing fiercely. Well, that's what the disciples were going to get into here. We see the class dismissed, but secondly, we see the chaotic disciples. Notice in verse 37, it says, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. This isn't good. (laughs) This isn't good at all. You see, the ship is supposed to be in the sea. The sea isn't supposed to be in the ship. But that's how it is in verse 37. It says the waves beat into the ship, and now the ship is full. Not good. You know, there are many events in life that start out, they start out placid, but they evolve into a storm. Now, notice also it mentions there in verse 37 a ship. It says the waves beat into the ship. It was a good-sized boat. It could hold at least 13 men, perhaps more. So we're not talking about a little fishing boat here. This is actually a ship. Now this ship is out on the Sea of Galilee. What is the Sea of Galilee? Well, you'll notice behind me in the very top of the frame, the Sea of Galilee. At the bottom you see the Dead Sea. And at the top there, the Sea of Galilee is the outlet for the Jordan River. That's the Jordan River flowing between the two there. Now, let me tell you a few things about the Sea of Galilee. Not only is it the outlet for the Jordan, but the Sea of Galilee is about 682 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is actually 1,300 feet below sea level. So, I mean, it drains pretty quickly in in about that 70, 75 miles from the north to the south when it runs from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea there. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by hills, yay, mountains. It's a bowl. It's got all these high places around it. It's about 13 miles from north to south at the widest and about 8 miles wide from east to west at the widest. And with all these mountains around it and with it in a bowl, and especially Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet above sea level, imagine the contrast here. Down there in that 682 feet elevation, it's kind of warm and humid, but you get up there in Mount Hermon and you've got those those chilly winds that come down and collide with those warm winds and and a violent storm can whip up just like that and there was absolutely no way of predicting it back in those days. In fact, it's hard to predict even in these days. I have a preacher friend who was on a tour of the Holy Land and they were out there on the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden a big storm whipped up and he started singing Peace Be Still, that song Brother Graham sings. and, And wouldn't you know it? 
the, the winds calm down. But I'm telling you, even today, they can come out of absolutely nowhere. And that ship found itself like a little, a little toy in the raging element of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And so here's these winds, and, and here's these gales, and here's this boat, though it's a ship looking pretty tiny at that point in the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it doesn't matter how big the ship is compared to a sea or an ocean. It's tiny. I've been over in Duluth many times. I love watching the, the, the tankers come in, the ocean liners and the lakers as they call them. And those lakers are actually a thousand feet long. And they come in from the, the uh, or they actually take iron ore out and in and, and take it to Cleveland, Detroit and Chicago and places like that. And I love going to that drawbridge there, but down in Canal Park and watching it come up and, and, and waiting for my ship to come in, as they say. And, um, and those ships are huge when you're alongside them. They, do, they just go by like that. But I've also been over there when I'm telling you the waves on Lake Superior were huge. They'd crash into the rocks along the shore and, and move them. They were so big. And I've seen those ships come in just terrified. And they've lost many of them out there in, in Lake Superior. So it doesn't matter if it's a ship the disciples are in here. They're afraid. It's like a cork in the ocean. In verse 38... It says, And he, Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Notice that. Don't you care that we're going to die? Almost sarcasm in their voices here. Aren't you concerned? I mean, they are freaked. Here's the quote, greatest, all right? Oh, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. They're not so great right now, are they? They're not so hot right now. They are timid. They, they, they talk big, they talk about running with the big dogs, but, but they're little scared puppies here. All of a sudden, Master, we're going down. We find out they're timid, they're faint-hearted, they're, they're nervous, they're, they're weak-kneed. You know, kind of like the lion on The Wizard of Oz. Remember that? All, all bark and no bite. And when he encountered the tin man, straw man, and, and Dorothy, he talks big, you know, I'll fight you on one leg. I'll, I'll fight you with one hand behind my back. And goes on and on. And, 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 she, and Dorothy slaps him. <laughs> what you have to do that for? And, and all of a sudden, he's, he's weak-kneed, and he's timid, and he's wimpy, and he's skittish, and chicken liver. And, and that's the disciples. They were talking big. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. All of a sudden, they're not so great. They're not hot stuff anymore. Fear came crawling over them like a thousand ants, and they're panicking, and, and they're saying, Master, carest thou not that we perish here? They're afraid. Fear. You ever been there? Fear. You know, there are, there are hundreds of phobias. There are hundreds of fears. And there are many reasons why you and I, with a, a trembling bony finger, can reach out and push the panic button quite often in life when all of a sudden something comes down upon us like this. And here's these twelve. Now they've gone from the classroom to the laboratory. This is the real world. And they say to Jesus there in verse 38, Carest thou not that we perish? You know, sometimes we don't understand God. God's silence is often misinterpreted as a casual unconcern on His part. Don't you care, God? Don't you care? God, have you gone into hiding? In Isaiah 45 and verse 15, the prophet says, Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. There are times we feel that way. God, you're a God who hides yourself. And, and sometimes when we feel He is, we feel forgotten. And the truth of the matter is, His silence is as planned as His action. And don't ever forget that. His silence is as planned as His action. He knows what He's doing. It's His sovereign right, if you will, to make us wait. And when... He's ready, he'll 
move on our behalf and He will speak. And maybe you have something in your life that you're waiting on God for and the heavens seem like brass as you pray and the answer is not coming and God is silent. Well, He knows what He's doing. His timing is always perfect. But you know, the most difficult thing about trials is waiting, isn't it? It's that nasty little four-letter word, wait. W-A-I-T. And I absolutely hate to wait. But yet Psalm 10 and verse 1 says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The disciples here are in a time of trouble and wondering where God is. And if He cares, carest thou not? And they're waiting. They have to wait. You know, the Bible talks about waiting almost as much as anything. In Romans 8, verse 25, it says, But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. You can't see it. It's out there yonder. God knows it's coming, but we don't. And But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, you might scratch your head and I might scratch my head wondering why isn't the Lord doing something about it? I mean... The apostles are scared. This is mean. This, this boat is going under. And, and, and why is he just ignoring this thing here? You ever feel like God is sleeping during your storm and your trial? And you wonder where he's at? The psalmist said in Psalm 44, 23, Awake! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise! Cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? God why aren't you doing something about this? Why aren't you on my side? You ever feel that way? You, you feel like you're on the right side. You're doing the right things. And God's on your side and you're on God's side, but you wonder if He's on my side. Why isn't He doing something about this? Now, God put this in the Bible for a reason. He inserted it in three out of the four Gospels, I think, for an analogy for us for life, basically. Here's the disciples. They are having peril at sea. This is bad. If a fisherman, a seasoned veteran fisherman, is scared in this storm, it must be bad. You know, the Bible land is a, it's a land of water, be it the Nile River or the Mediterranean Sea or the Jordan or those two other seas, as I mentioned a moment ago. And you find all kinds of stories in the Bible that are connected to water, like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Uh, Paul talked about being shipwrecked three times and a night and a day in the sea. And there's a lot in the, the Bible about water and there's a lot in the Bible that talks about the weather. And here I think you've got the two connected, and I think you've got the devil behind this thing, because the devil may here have been trying to kill the Lord Jesus Christ before he got to the cross, before he could shed blood. Why not drown him and do away with the blood atonement? You say, well, pastor, can the devil control the weather? And we talked about that recently. Yes, he can. When Job lost his children in a storm, the Bible says in Job 1.19, Behold, there was a great wind from the wilderness, and it smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they're dead. And the, the devil, we know, was talking about that very thing in heaven. And so he conjured up this tornado there to basically do in Job's children. Well, I think he conjured up this hurricane here at sea to get rid of the disciples and Jesus. And yet... We find that in verse 38, Jesus was asleep on a pillow. You ever known anybody who can sleep through anything? <laughs> They're in a hurricane, and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the ship uh, on a pillow. 
There have been times out at our farm there where we have just a thunder boomer, and I mean, it crashes so loud through the night, it just knocks me out of bed, and and I wake up in the morning just kind of blurry-eyed and and, and say, boy, that was a rough one, huh, kids? And they go, what are you talking about? You know, they slept through the dumb thing and, and didn't even know it stormed. Well, Jesus is sound asleep, which, by the way, tells you how tired he was, how weary he was. So he sleeps through it. We see his humanity here. He had to sleep. And, and really, he got tired, and he got hungry, and he hurt because he was man, 100% man. In fact, Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. The only way he can qualify as a faithful and merciful high priest is to be able to say, I know how it feels. I've been there. I can empathize with you. And so it behooved him. He had to do it. To be made like unto his brother. What's that mean? Flesh, like us. He incarnated himself and came down, took on flesh, and he got tired and weary and hungry, and, and he experienced pain just like us. And now he's sleeping. He's sleeping in the boat. And yet, he's very much aware of what's going on. In his omniscience, he is more than aware of what's taking place around him. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So he was asleep, but he wasn't asleep. He was well aware of what was going on. We see the chaotic disciples, but thirdly, we see the calm deity. And Jesus Christ is that deity. Notice in verse 39, it says, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Imagine this. He wakes up to panic on the faces of the disciples here. He just gets up, and the Bible doesn't say he screamed. The Bible doesn't say he shouted. You know, we picture it that way, but he said, peace, be still. No volume mentioned there at all. Not needed. Because the same voice that spoke the world, yea, the universe into existence, can simply calm a sea. And so he says, peace, be still. And there's a hush, and there's a quiet, and it's instant. Because he's exceedingly authoritative in what he does. And so he calms the sea in the midst of the howling tempest, in the midst of the heaving sea, in the midst of the pitch black. He calms it by just saying, peace, be still. That's deity. We see his calm deity. He, he does something that no man could do, never has done, never could do. Something Muhammad could never do. Something Buddha could never do. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone, can certainly control whatever He's created. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it speaks of Him and it says He's upholding all things by the word of His power. And when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Notice He's upholding all things by the word of His power. While He was on the earth, even here, He was busy upholding all the heavenly bodies, and controlling everything. The same Creator who made it all was upholding it all. And He was certainly able to uphold the sea. He was the admiral of the ocean. And I imagine He might not have said it, but almost thought it, you woke me up for this? You woke me up for this? It was nothing for Him to do it all. In Psalm 89 and verse 9, it says, Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, Thou stillest them. And so it was no biggie for him. If he could create water, and if he could walk on water, he could certainly rebuke water. In the same way he could rebuke devils or fever or whatever it might be, as the Bible mentions. Now in verse 40, notice, 
And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that they have no faith? Boy, what an insult. Not really an insult, but really uh, an indictment. I mean, they didn't have any faith. They thought they were the greatest, but they sure didn't have the greatest faith, that's for sure. And he really says something that just cuts to the core of any one of us. Do we have faith? You know, I was teaching Bible college most of the day yesterday, and and we talked about faith. And I, I was talking about those that know the Lord, love the Lord, and they're godly people, and, and they're living for Christ, but they're not exhibiting faith. There are preachers that way. There are churches that way. And, and really, those churches will go nowhere until they learn to step out by faith time and time and time again. And the disciples here had no faith. God give us some faith. Now notice in verse number 41, it says, And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this? That even the wind, the sea, obey him. Notice verse 41 says, And they feared exceedingly. Were they still afraid of the storm? No, the storm was gone. Isn't that odd? They went from fear to fear. They were afraid during the storm, but now they have a healthy awe of God. Their fear here is a fear of the Lord. God help us to have that. Oh, how we need a fear of the Lord. You know, this story is very similar to an Old Testament story that we find back in the book of Jonah. Jonah, the backslidden prophet, is given an assignment by God, but he runs off and he goes out to sea trying to avoid God. Remember what happened? A storm arose at sea. Now here's all these heathen Gentile sailors going, what's wrong? Who's, Who's got sin in their life? I find that amazing. And so they're going through the boat trying to figure out who's causing this storm out there. Well, here's Jonah down in the bottom sleeping through the storm, totally backslidden. And the captain comes down and he says, what are you doing, man? Get up and cry out to your God. There's a storm at sea. We're going down. And Jonah said, well, we can save our breath. I'm the problem here. They said, what? Who are you? And he said, I'm a Jewish prophet. Oh, no! And I'm running from God. Oh, that's even worse. And, and, and so they, he says, just throw me in the ocean. The whole thing will calm down. They said, we can't do that. To their credit, they had a heart. And so, men, row harder, harder, harder. And it's just worthless. Finally, they give up and said, we don't want to do this, but heave ho and kersplash. And all of a sudden, comes the whale and, and swallows Jonah. And they go, yeah, they, they can't believe what they're watching here. The Bible says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice and the Lord made vows. It caused them to fear God. Oh, and I've been preaching about that lately around here. How we need a fear of the Lord. It would sure keep a lot of sin out of our lives. Well, the disciples here, they're fearing the Lord. They're going, who is this? I mean, they should know. They, they, they watch miracles all day long. But I'm telling you, this was amazing. Nobody calms a storm. You know, it should be like us. We see what He does. But we still get amazed when He does it. Well, we see the class dismissed, the chaotic disciples, the calm deity. Now, let's look at, finally, the Christian's determination. What can we determine from this? I mean, none of us are immune to concerns, are we? Somebody said man is the only animal that is prone to worry. And when you think about it, it's true. You don't see your dog worrying, do you? And your cat worrying. But we are worriers. And we worry about all kinds of things. Physical problems that that we might be having. Relationship problems. 
where we might be having problems in the home with the marriage or the kids or, or maybe somebody in the church. Maybe it's a financial problem and we worry about that. Maybe it's a, a legal battle. You ever been in one of those? And you just go, man, how's this thing going to play out? I hate this. They tell us there are over 200 phobias. Not only phobias of water and, and phobias of heights. There are phobias of, of tight spaces. When I was in the electrical business, man, I got into some attics and some crawl spaces and remodeling jobs that, honestly, I had to shimmy in and, and my helper had to pull me out by the feet. I couldn't even turn over in those things. And they call it claustrophobia. And some people have that. There are phobias of death. There are phobias of the dark. There are phobias of earthquakes. There are over 200 phobias. And nobody, nobody is immune to anxiety. We, we all can experience anxiety. You say, but I'm a Christian. Well, let me just tell you, Christians have heart attacks like non-Christians, don't they? And, and Christians have cancer and get cancer like non-Christians. In fact, uh, Thursday, one of the dear ladies in our church here phoned me and, with some bad news about a checkup and, and cancer. Christians get murdered, just like the unsaved do, and Christians have car accidents, just like unsaved people do, because chaos is universal. I mean, we're not immune to any of these things. And sometimes we are, we are blindsided with horror beyond belief as it comes into our lives. So what do we do? What do we do when, when we're in the midst of the Sea of Galilee? What do we do when we're a, an impossible situation that only the Master can help us through? What do we do? Well, number one, we should offer up a sacrifice of praise. And that word sacrifice means just that. It's going to cost us something to do it because it's not easy to do. We don't feel like doing it. We're going through choppy waters, but we praise God anyhow. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15, By Christ, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And praising God in a sacrifice of praise is still exalting His name when it's hard to do. We offer up a sacrifice of praise. Secondly, we refuse to be controlled by the situation we're in or the circumstance that we're in. If, if we wrestle with God on it, eh, we're going to lose. If we try and take the controls, we're going to lose. We cannot encounter it in the flesh, and I've done plenty of that. I've done plenty of that. But I must refuse to let the situation control me. And the same with you. Thirdly, we need to remind ourselves of Bible truth. Bible truth. Promises in the Word of God. The apostles forgot everything they learned that day. Isn't that pitiful? They're in the classroom all day long. Christ is dealing with the subject of faith. And they get out there in the, in the actual storm and they lay an egg because they've forgotten everything that they've learned. God help us to remind ourselves of Bible truth, and I've been using that lately even, reminding myself of promises, claiming promises in the Bible, and trying to make it more than a head knowledge, really incorporate it into my life, and bring it from the classroom into the laboratory of life. Do some OJT here. Fourthly, we need to walk with God during calm times. Too many Christians wait until the storms erupt, and then they panic, and they have no arsenal, no weaponry, to actually deal with the storm. You know, when Nehemiah had his feet to the fire and, and all of a sudden the king is going, what do you want? What, what are you requesting? He'd been walking with God already. He'd been already praying. And he, was on, he was on the right terms with God. He was on praying grounds with the Lord. And so God help us to walk with him during the calm times and not wait until the storms. Put some roots down ahead of time so we have a foundation when the time comes. Fifthly, when those storms come, we need to replace fear with faith. And that is we trust God. He is sovereign. He knows what He's doing. 
We read in Isaiah 43, verse 2, he says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Aren't those wonderful promises from the Word of God? When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And may I say, finally, you need to be sure that Jesus Christ is at the center of your life. Because there are a lot of people out there, and they're dealing with storms, and they're going through valleys, and they're dealing with trials, but they don't really know God. I mean, He's kind of the good Lord, and, and our Lord, but He's not their Lord. They have never truly been born again the Bible way. And the knowledge they have of God is all up here. It's head knowledge, basically. And it has never got from here to here, from the head to the heart, about, oh, 14 inches away. That's really where most people are at in their relationship with God. He, he's, he's the man upstairs. He's the big guy in the sky, you know, that kind of thing. But they don't know Him really intimately, personally, because they're not really His child. You say, oh, we're all God's children. No, the Bible says as many as receive Christ, to them gives you the power to become the children of God. For me, that was on March 5th, 1981. Have you had a time in your life when you realized you were lost, on the road to hell, born that way, in sin, and you realize the wages of sin is hell, it's death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in repentance, you were willing to turn from sin. And in faith, you turned to Jesus Christ. And you called upon Him. And He saved you. And your life changed. And you've never been the same. You'll never work your way to heaven. Your baptism will not get you to heaven. Your good works will not get you to heaven. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ in Him alone that will get you to heaven. Have you been born again the Bible way? Now look back in Psalm 107. If you would, I'm going to preach another sermon. No, just kidding. We're going to close with this passage that I think is so apropos, as we say in our dignified circles. Is your life marked by an incredible amount of storms? And you're like the disciples there and you go through it. Well, God never wastes a storm. (laughs) That's the good news. Never forget that. God never wastes a storm. Let's close with these comforting words here. In Psalm 107, the psalmist wrote beginning in verse 23, They that go down to the sea in ships and do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at wit's And that's where we get the expression. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So He bringeth them into their desired haven. Can you just picture it? And it ends in verse 31 by saying, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. If you have a storm in your life, past, present, future, just know this, God doesn't waste storms. God might be silent like Christ was for the moment, but God is up to something, and Jesus Christ fulfilled all of this. And now may God help us to take this lesson from the classroom into the laboratory. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. 
If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.